0: is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 3, 19. So if you had open there, if you're looking for it in the pew Bible that is in the rack in front of you, it's on page 1, so you can find it. Genesis 1, 26 through chapter 3, verse 19. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the days that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature and Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed from the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, You shall surely die. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature... That was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden, but Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, "I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I command you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to me, uh, you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Yahweh God said to the serpent, and to dust you shall return. You can be seated as we pray. Father, it's a lengthy passage we've read at the outset, but it's such a foundational story for how we understand this world and particularly how we understand ourselves as people. So we pray that you would work In and amongst us, we we together collectively ask you to speak today to us, that we might understand what you have said, and especially that we would understand how to think and understand who we are as people, in light of what your word says. In Jesus' name, amen. We as Christians are unique in our view of mankind because we simultaneously hold the highest view and the lowest possible view of mankind. We have a high view because we believe the Bible teaches us that we were all made in God's image. And we have a low view because we believe the Bible teaches us that we are all totally depraved. Made in God's image, totally depraved. Lose sight of either of these views. And not only do we veer from the the line the Scriptures hold out for us, but we end up with a skewed view of the world. Just listen to a few of the things that are affected when we view people the wrong way. It affects the way we explain the gospel. It affects the way we engage our surrounding culture. It affects the very causes we give ourselves to. See, all of these things are shaped by how we view our nature as people. Yet sadly, for many Christians today, one or both of these truths are mere specks on the horizon. If that, they have little effect on how we think or how we engage our world. A failure to see people the same way God does leads us to a dangerously skewed view of our world. But the good news is the opposite is also true. If failure to grasp the way God sees people leads to a skewed view of the world, then rightly grasping it allows us to see much of our world clearly. So I want us to think of these as kind of a corrective lens. We, we walk around viewing the world in a distorted and blurred way, and these truths about creating God's image and totally depraved, they, they serve as kind of a corrective lens that we can put on, and all of a sudden we're able to see things much more clearly that are otherwise very difficult to navigate. So I I want through this sermon, I want through this time that we spend in God's Word for us all to receive that corrective lens. I want you to be able to take these two truths, one in each of your hands. You can even visually walk out of here thinking, I'm going to hold both of these things, one in one hand, one in the other. In one hand, hold on to people are made in God's image hold that firmly, hold that tightly, understand its implications. And then in the other hand, hold firmly, hold tightly. People are totally depraved. Never let go of those two. Don't let them become specks on the horizon. Hold them tightly. And the sermon today then is intended to just help you understand these two, these twin pillar truths of which we ought not let go of either. So I want to begin then where the Bible begins with this first truth that people are made in the image of God. You might have noticed as I read, people are made, when God makes people on the sixth day, He makes them in an entirely different way than He makes the rest of creation. So if you were, we didn't read the first chapter, uh, the rest of the first chapter of Genesis, But if if you read along, he says, let there be light. Let there be an expanse. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered. Let the earth sprout. It's always let and then some aspect of what he's created. But do you notice what's different in verse 26 when he creates man? Not let some created thing, but let us. It's a very different way he even talks about creating. And then it's the only Only thing in all of the creation that he says is made in his image. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Do you see that in verse 26? And to underscore the point, there's that poetic triplet there in verse 27 that emphasizes that. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man and woman, all of humanity created in the image of God unlike the rest of creation and then God talks about what they're to do in light of being created in the image of God and he says they are uniquely in a position over all of creation right we see that in chapter one at a couple points and then we see it later on in chapter two when Adam is placed over the garden to care for it and cultivate it he's in a unique position at the helm of creation and look at how each of the days in creation closes. So if you look in verse 4, it says, "And God saw that the light was good," we're in chapter 1 still. If you look at the end of chapter or verse 10, and God saw that it was good. If you look at the end of 12, God saw that it was good. If you look at the end of verse 18, And God saw that it was good. If you look at the end of verse 21. And God saw that it was good. But then there's something very different, isn't there? In verse 31. After he's created man. Humans. People. Now he looks out all of his creation. With mankind at the pinnacle caring for it all, and instead of saying good, he said, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Moreover, even the initial description of creation that runs through the very beginning of chapter 2, it pauses, and when it moves on, it moves on to kind of go down into slow motion and look very particularly and uniquely at the creation of man and woman. As any fan of action movies or of sports knows, when something is in slow motion, it's important. And so the fact that God slows down to show his creation of man shows that mankind is unique, uniquely created in the image of God. No other created thing is created like that. According to the Bible, people are the pinnacle of God's creation. Now, I just want to pause right here and give one brief implication of that as it relates to animals. The Bible tells us that a righteous man cares for the needs of his animal. It also teaches us that all life is valuable, including animal life. But we need to be careful that we don't blur the lines between people and animals, Our pets are animals, not children. And as our society treats our pets more and more like they would treat a human, it represents a departure from biblical teaching. It's not a sign of health that our culture is more outraged when a dog is treated inhumanely than when an unborn child is killed in her mother's womb. It is not to our credit when we can make sure that an orca isn't held in captivity, but we can't stop the sexual exploitation of women so rampant in the porn industry. It's as if we're insisting our child say please and thank you, but looking a blind eye when they punch people in the face. Something is off. But that was just a digression, I think an important implication, but I want to return to the point at hand Mankind, humanity, is made unique in the image of God. So we've established that. But what does it mean? What do, we, what do we mean when we say something or someone is made in the image of God? I think there are two key aspects to it. So I want to I just t- draw out two key aspects of being made in the image of God. Made in the image of God, the first key aspect is that we have an inherent, uh, a natural purpose, a God-given purpose. I remember uh, teaching children about being made in the image of God. And we were all sitting in a big circle. And I had a mirror. And I passed the mirror around the circle. And I said, what you're seeing is an image or a likeness of yourself. When, When we talk about being made in the image of God... It's something similar to an image in a mirror. There's a reflection there. But I said, unlike in a mirror, in a mirror what you're seeing is a reflection of what you look like. But we're not a reflection of God in how we look. We are created to be a reflection of God as to who He is, what He's like. We're supposed to be walking image bearers of God so that it's like we're a mirror where what God is like bounces off of us and because of who we are as God's image, people can see who God is like. Now, to just kind of show you from from this passage and the rest of Scripture that that's what's primarily being talked about when we talk about someone being made in in the image of God, notice that in light of man being made in the image of God, male and female, God's image. They're given two commands. They're given the command to fill the earth, to spread out all over it, and to rule the earth. Those are aspects not of looking like him, but they're aspects of reflecting him. We're supposed to spread out and we're supposed to rule like he does. We're supposed to do something he does in the way he does. We're supposed to care for it and cultivate it. right? We're supposed to be a reflection of who he is. Later on, God will say to his people Israel, who he's kind of reconstituting to be his people, just kind of like Adam and Eve were. He says, You are to be holy as I, the Lord, am holy. Leviticus chapter 20. And when you think, think about Jesus, Jesus in Colossians is called the image of the invisible God. In what way is he his image? It's not because he looks like the Father. It's, because he, it's not even because he has a soul or has intelligence or anything else, right? He is uniquely the image of God because he is a perfect reflection of who he is. He's a perfect reflection of what God is like. So we are created then to reflect our creator to this world. His love, his care, his justice... His tenderness, His holiness, that's what we're to be like. Walking image bearers of Christ. As 1 Peter 2 says, you're to to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His light. That's what we're to be, people who walk around proclaiming His excellencies. In fact, Christians just means little Christ. We're little image bearers of Christ, pointing people what Christ is like. That's what all of us were created to be. We're all created to be God's image bearers. That is our inherent, our created purpose. Now, I just want to take this idea then and trace it through the Bible a little bit so we just get a, a, a broad understanding what the Bible, how the Bible teases that out. That's why I read so much of Genesis chapter, the first few chapters of Genesis. It's not just that God created us as, as image bearers. The story goes on, right? Adam rejects God. And he, and he unleashes rebellion and sin and death into the world. And all of a sudden, because of that, our ability to reflect God well was marred and distorted. Instead of reflecting His love, we bring strife and discord. Instead of reflecting His mercy and His charity, we have jealousy and bitterness. There's hardship and pain in this world. We aren't living out what we were designed to be. And then what does God do? He sends His Son, Jesus, into the world who is the perfect image of God. He perfectly reflects God's character because he is, in fact, fully God, fully man, right? He is a perfect reflection of God. But then he does something. He doesn't say, hey, this is what you should have been like, see ya. He actually takes our broken humanity upon himself and takes the full weight of God's sin upon himself and dies in our place. So that sin that Adam unleashed upon the world could be conquered. So that our hearts, our very natures could be changed. And so that we could be restored again to our original purpose. A purpose to reflect Him. So then when we place our faith in Jesus, not only does He forgive our rebellion against Him, which is great news but He changes us. And He gives us His Spirit so that we can go about in this world reflecting our Savior. And then the more we grow as Christians, the more we reflect to the world around us what God is like. And then we keep growing more and more Christ-like until we reach heaven, at which point everyone will be Everyone who's placed their faith in Christ will be perfectly like Christ. And we'll get to enjoy that forever. Now, just think about that. What a blessing that is. Our calling as believers, our calling as humanity, which, is allowed, which, which, which we can accomplish if we put our faith in Christ, is to, be, to, to go around. What you and I are designed to do is to go around and give people a foretaste of what God is like people by interacting with us that that waiter at the west restaurant that cashier at the checkout line that coworker that boss that cleaning lady whoever it is by the way we interact with them should have a sense oh that's what god's like and then when we're done with that we get to enjoy an eternal place that perfect where everyone is perfectly Reflecting his grace and his kindness and his love and his joy. It couldn't be any better what he's called us to do. Now think about how that then changes our view of the world. See, the world tells us that we exist, what our purpose is, is to make ourselves happy. To get for ourselves as much pleasure as possible, or as much power, or as much money, or as much of a sense of self worth, self worth as we can possibly get. Actualize ourselves, realize our dreams. And so we all give ourselves to do this, and it's this rat race we live in. And yet we get more depressed, we feel more empty. And we end up more estranged from those we love. Perhaps you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ. But you've been giving yourself to the very things the world says you should be giving yourself to. And you found that void. You found that emptiness and you say, I know I need something more. Here today, God is telling you in His Word what His purpose for you is. I mean, what if instead of pursuing the rat race, we exist to be little image bearers of Christ? We tell people there's a better world coming and we walk around now as new people showing what the king of that new world is like. It transforms everything. It transforms how you view that hard diagnosis, that frustrating work situation, that tension with someone you love. It changes how we view everything. Now I'm supposed to walk into that situation, grow more Christ like, and reflect what Christ is like instead of just make myself happy, get more power, get more pleasure. We are made in the image of God. It is a corrective lens that changes how we looked at everything. And and part of how it's a corrective lens, I said there's two aspects of being made in the image of God, is it gives us an eternal and worthwhile purpose. Inherent purpose. The other aspect is inherent worth. Being created in God's image not only means that it gives us an inherent purpose, but it also gives us an inherent worth. After humanity falls, as we read about, the first command given by God is not to kill. Stop killing one another. And listen to how God words it, because this is very interesting. It's Genesis 9-6. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. It is because man uniquely is created in the image of God that we're not to kill man. In the New Testament, James chapter 3, 9 takes it even further and says we shouldn't even curse man because man is made in the image of God. You see, Christians... Throughout the centuries have been marked by this understanding that people are created in God's image. And so we have been known as a people who care for all people, particularly those who are in need. Some time ago, I spoke to a man who shared with me his story of coming to faith. He was from China. His grandfather had been persecuted badly by the communist regime. And had taught his father to to look for something different than what communism was offering. And so his father, who had no understanding of Christianity, just studied the different world religions that were out there. And the different countries and cultures that were out there. And he found that those cultures, the, the more a culture was built on Christian values and valued the things of Christ the more that culture treated people rightly. So he taught his son. He said, when you go to the United States to study, you have to find out what it is about Christianity that makes it so different. So he went and he studied and he became a Christian. You see, his dad was right. It's Christians who led the fight against child labor. It was Bible-believing Christians like William Wilberforce who sacrificed so much to bring an end to slavery. You know, even in the early days of the church, one of the way, one of the things they had as a reputation for themselves, you see, in those days, there wasn't rampant abortion. But if you had an unwanted child, what you would do is you would leave them exposed. You would put them in the woods or somewhere and they would be exposed and eventually through an animal or whatever, they would die. Christians, when they heard the cries of those babies, would go and rescue them. Only Christians were doing that. One of our pastors, the one who gave the announcement, Mark, has an aunt who's an atheist and also a feminist. And she respects Christianity because she studied history and knows how much it's done to elevate the plight of women who through so much of culture and time have been oppressed. When Muslims come to an area, they build mosques. When Christians come somewhere, they build hospitals and schools. They bring clean water. When you believe that people are made in God's image, it changes how we see the world. And how should it affect how we see the world? Especially those that society tends to overlook, those that society puts on the fringe, those that the deck, so to speak, is stacked against, who are fighting an uphill battle in our society, should be those who are nearest to our heart. So I want to just pause right now and go through just five different types of people who I think we're, we, we as a congregation need to be particularly in tune to as, as people who are image bearers of Christ and how we treat them. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. But there, there are five that I wanted to highlight. The first is refugees. I want to highlight this because I know in some circles there is a political debate as to who should be let into our country and who ought not to. Obviously that rages in in the U.S., but it also has surfaced in Canada. I just want to lay aside all that politics for a little bit and talk about once somebody is actually here. Once a refugee is in our country, I want this church to be known as a church that bends over backwards to care for the needs of the refugee. And that's why I'm so grateful that it was a group from our church that that banded together and eventually joined with other members of the community to spearhead efforts to sponsor refugees coming to Georgetown. Thank you for those who've been a part of that, and I encourage others to get involved. Refugees. Second, immigrants. We know that Toronto is one of the most diverse cities in the world. You just go to Brampton or or Mississauga. You, You sense that diversity. And Georgetown is increasingly becoming diverse. For some of you, it might be hard to interact with somebody who speaks differently than you, who drives differently than you, who dresses differently than you, who smells differently than you, and who even engages in discussion or debate differently from you. But they are made in God's image, just like you. Let that be the lens you look at people who are different than you. We must, as a church, become a church that understands the beauty of the diversity of God's people. So, when you see someone who perhaps makes you a little uncomfortable, I know that's not true for everyone here, but if you're here and that makes you a little uncomfortable, here's what you do. Ask them their name. Tell them your name. And then ask you to tell them their story, your story. Ask them to tell you their story. That's all you have to do. And all of a sudden, you start to understand the Holy Spirit in you. This is somebody made in God's image. And your heart will be drawn to them. And will understand what we are together. I-, I want this church, as Georgetown becomes more diverse, I want this church To match that diversity. And one of the great joys of my heart over the last couple years is seeing people from different parts of the world coming and making this their church home. Third, single moms. Single moms have one of the most difficult tasks today. So I want to say to you: if you have a relationship with a single mom, maybe someone you know through the schools or in your neighborhood or even in the church. Do everything you can to support her. Invite her into your home for meals. Offer to watch your kids so she can just have a a day to get her chores done or errands done or even just a day to breathe. Maybe help her with her household chores, particularly anything that would be typically a man chore. So single moms. The fourth group, is those with special needs. You see, this church has a long history of being a welcoming place for those with special needs. I have a newspaper from a couple decades ago in my office that's a picture of uh, two men from our church who led a, a ball hockey team for people with special needs. And I pray that that would continue to be the case. In fact, one of the things that's been a burden on my heart that I've been praying about is I, want this, I, want, I, would, I would love to see God raise up for this church a group of people who'd be willing to spearhead a ministry to those with special needs. I want this church to have a reputation in our community as a place that loves and welcomes those with special needs and also who comes alongside their families who also carry unique burdens. In support. Refugees, immigrants, single moms, those with special needs. The last group I want to talk about is the unborn. There are none who are more helpless and vulnerable than a baby in the womb. And in Canada, no segment of our population is at greater risk of being killed. What specific steps have we taken to stand up for the unborn? And I know there's people in this room who've had an abortion, who've done that. I want you to know there is grace. God is a good God. He knows your circumstances. He loves you and He cares for you. Just because I say we need to be standing up for that, generally it's people who've gone through it who, who are most passionate about it because they know what it's like to carry that. We don't, we don't look on you crooked if that's something you've had in your past. Those are five different groups, but but we could go on and on. But what I want us to see is we, I want us to see this, this aspect that, that people are made in God's image and therefore they have inherent worth. Right? It affects how we interact with everybody. So, I talked at the beginning about two things I want us to hold in our hand. Uh, In one hand, I want us to view that people are created in God's image. And I want that to be a corrective lens that transforms our worldview. I want to shape how we view what we're to live for, what our purpose is. And I want to shape how we treat the weak and vulnerable amongst us because they have worth. Made in God's image. Hold tight to that. Now let's look what we're to hold in the other hand. Even as we grasp that people are made in God's image, we also understand that they're totally depraved. You see, we, we read the story of, of what, how humanity began. Everything was very good. And then, ultimately, Adam, who heard the command from God, rebels against it. And takes from the tree that he was told not to eat from. And it unleashes upon mankind death and sin and all that's terrible. And that sin spreads everywhere. It includes every one of us. I mentioned how I taught children about uh, being in the image of God with a mirror. This is how I've taught children about total depravity. I've imagined there's this, there's this box in the middle of, of a circle again of people, kids. Kids. And I say, we're told, don't open that box. Because it unleashes death the moment it's opened. And then somebody goes and throws it wide open. And a poison leaks out that contaminates everything. It goes everywhere. And even penetrates every aspect of our own heart. It's a poison that's unleashed. That's why things die. That's why there is conflict in the created world and between people especially. You see, sin is pervasive. It is everywhere. This poison contaminates everything. I want to do just a little exercise to illustrate this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you 30 seconds. And I'm going to challenge everyone here to go 30 seconds without sinning. All right? That's what I want you to do starting now. So how'd you do? Some of you might have been outright disqualified in trying not to think some explicitly sinful thought you did. But what about the rest? In those 30 seconds, were you self-reliant instead of God-reliant? Were you proud of yourself for doing such a good job? Hey, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Were you comparing yourself to others? I'm going to be able to do this, and maybe other people won't. Maybe you're judging others. Maybe you're sitting near somebody and you're like, I know where their mind's going right now. Or maybe it's just sloth. Just kind of, oh, 30 seconds, turn my mind off and not engage at all, right? It's an illustration. We can chuckle at it. I think that's appropriate. But it's also actually a pretty jarring reality. The poison affects all of us. And when you just, I want to read a couple of verses from Romans 5. Let me turn there real quick. It says, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. And then later it says in chapter 5, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man Je- uh, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Do you see what the Bible teaches? It's this poison that's unleashed. Everybody is made a sinner. Death and with its sin reign in this world. It is a poison that is leaked everywhere. It affects every aspect of who we are so that even our most righteous deeds are tainted. I was listening to a, uh, a, a children's radio program called Adventures in Odyssey If you don't know about it, it's a great resource. We bought a bunch of their CDs. And in this particular one, uh, Witt is playing a game with the kids called uh, Right, 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 Wrong, Wrong, or something like that. And the idea is that he breaks things down into actions and motives. So you can take a certain action, and the action itself can be right or wrong, and then the motive behind it can be right or wrong. So you could do something, a right action, like helping a little old lady across the street for a wrong motive because you want to beat all your friends and getting badges quicker, right? Or you could do something wrong, stealing a toy from a store with a right motive because your sister really, really wants that toy. So he goes through all these different scenarios. Is this a right right? Is this a wrong right? You know, all these different types of different things but he's actually a little wrong in that game. It's a helpful distinction for kids. But he's wrong because he misses the idea of total depravity. There is nothing we can do because this poison is so pervasive where our motives are completely unalloyed. There's always wickedness tied in with every motivation. That's how pervasive sin is. The most godly man I know There's a man named Ken Taylor. He's not living anymore. But he would say, sometimes when I think about how humble I am, it makes me proud. (laughs) So sin is pervasive. The other thing we need to understand about sin is its appetite is never quenched. The sin in me and in you, the sin that lurks within us, that we understand contaminates every aspect of who we are, it, its appetite is unquenchable. Think about it. Really, none of us is as bad as we could be. But why are we not as bad as we could be? Why are there very di- different, varying levels of goodness amongst us? Is it not because of societal pressures... Because of fear of repercussion, because of a desire to be respected, because of a desire not to let somebody down. But if you remove these checks, if they're gone, we would likely every one of us, be much worse than we actually are, which is why the old saying is true, absolute power corrupts absolutely, because when you have absolute power, almost all those checks are taken away, and now sin, which has an unquenchable appetite, can do all sorts of things. So how does this view view of mankind being totally depraved, how is it a corrective lens for us? How does it change how we view the world? Those of you who know much about history, and especially the ideas of man, know that in the 19th century, the 1800s, there was this, this rising optimism about mankind. There was a sense that there wasn't anything that we could accomplish, that we couldn't accomplish, if we just set our minds to it. We could solve all of all the world's problems through sociology, or through science, or whatever it is. And so they would get together these great um, carnivals to the praise of man called world fairs. And these world exhibitions or world fairs would take place every few years, and people would gather to see the great achievements of mankind and celebrate the greatness of mankind and what we can do. And then World War I. And then... World War II. The school that I went to actually scrapped its sociology program in light of those events and said we've gotten it all wrong. The optimism was shattered. But that unrelenting optimism, that belief in man is returning again. I don't know if you've sensed it. But you only need to Watch the Olympics or listen to the propaganda at our public schools. You see, if we all just believe the best about each other, if we all just get along, we'll have a happy, perfect world. And they say it with all the seriousness of an academic dissertation, meanwhile, it's with the naivety of Disney's It's a Small World. But here's the stark and honest reality that the Bible gives us. Unless God changes our wicked hearts, we as people would continue to slouch towards Gomorrah instead of marching towards some sort of utopia. You see, many of us today, many of us look out on the world and all the war that's going on, dysfunction, and we're convinced the end must be near. The end times are coming, and it may be. But any student of history can tell you that such brokenness has marked every era of our existence. All that's changed now is it's featured on the nightly news and in our Facebook feeds. The wickedness of man and the brokenness of our world should not surprise us as Christians because we uniquely understand the nature of mankind that we are totally depraved. But the corrective lens of total depravity affects more than just how we kind of view major events in the world and the the overall movement of mankind. It also transforms how we view our desires. See, the world tells us that if a desire is innate, if it's something that arises naturally within us, it can't be wrong. Be that a desire to be the opposite gender, A sexual desire for your same sex, or even a desire for so called open marriage. The world tells us if that's a natural desire to you, it can't be wrong. The world tells us listen to your hearts, it tells us to follow our dreams. But you see, there's an underlying assumption that our desires and our hearts and our dreams are basically good. And the Bible teaches just the opposite. It teaches us that our desires are rooted in sin and rebellion, that our hearts are desperately wicked, that our dreams are often full of folly. Now consider how these different errors that the, that the idea of total depravity gives us a corrective lens to, consider this, how, how this would affect our gospel message. When we fail to see man's deep depravity and the seriousness of that, then all that we need from God is for him to remove a few obstacles in front of us so that we can act out our desires, follow our heart, and pursue our dreams. So the gospel then becomes nothing more than kind of a a self-help system where God is the guru to help you actualize yourself. Or when we view man as basically good and we give ourselves to the so-called social gospel, giving our efforts to the common utopian goals of all mankind... We end up failing to proclaim the true gospel. But listen, the true gospel is that God is actually taking what is profoundly broken and diseased and poisoned and making it new and whole. And until we grasp and admit our own depravity, we can't see the goodness of such a a gospel. Our hymn writers get it right, don't they? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me, a lost blind wretch. Or the song we sang earlier today, which I think contains the one line, the one line in poetry that captures our condition as humans the best, frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In thee do we trust nor find thee to fail. So the the corrective lens of human depravity cures us of a faith in humanity that defines our age. It dissuades us from believing our dreams and impulses must be good as long as they're natural to us. And it allows us to preach a real gospel that speaks to our deepest and truest needs as people. So hold that second pillar tightly in your hand. People are totally depraved, made in God's image in one hand, totally depraved in the other. So I want to close with a question. What if we viewed the people around us with these twin truths in mind? What if we allowed the Bible to be our corrective lens? How would it shape our interactions with them? We have the Lord's table in front of us. Would we not be eager to say, come, find, about, find out about the one who delivered us from our bondage to sin. Eat this bread that represents our liberation would we not say come and find out about the one who was our Passover lamb to deliver us from the penalty due to our sin? Come, drink of the cup that signifies his blood for us. As we gather around the table, may we rejoice in the true gospel that speaks to our human condition. Let's pray. Father, we gather with this table in front of us, aware of our own depravity, aware of what you've called us to be as your image bearers, and therefore aware of our need for Christ. Even as we reflect on these elements and this meal, draw those truths home all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite those who'll be serving uh, communion to come forward at this time.